Welcome back to the world of survivor horror. This is The Spencer Statement, a podcast where my friends and I do some deep dives into the Resident Evil series. I'm Vanessa, aka Vanessa Sketch, and with me as always are my friends Chris, aka Jabberwocky1986. Hey. Hey yo. And Paul, aka Castlework Blogs. Hey. Hey there, how's it going? Good. Uh, now that we're back after a hiatus because uh, I had a lot of work and then had to move and it was a whole thing and we're all settled in now, we're going to do a, a deep dive into Resident Evil 1. We're going to be covering both the original and the remake and we have a lot of news to cover today so this is going to end up being a two-parter episode. First one's going to be focusing more on the original and the remake will get more focus in part two. But, you know, since it's us, there's, you know, probably going to be some comparison talk along the way. And uh, we will probably be covering the characters in part two. Yes. Just to get that clear. Yeah. Yeah. So definitely stay tuned for both of those. And it's going to be a real fun episode. But first, we have a ton of news to cover since the last time. So... We're going to start off with that. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, news. First item of business, Resistance. Resident Evil Resistance had its final planned update this month in October 2020. Uh, apparently, it kind of broke it balance-wise, though. Yeah. Which is a bummer. Surprise, surprise. I've been seeing some of the clips that have been coming out about that, and yeah, it's it's pretty rough. It looks really, really rough. And I'm also hearing that it's also, I don't know if it's like somehow changed the player base because of it, but I'm also just, yeah, it's uh, it's amazing following people on Twitter and seeing their clips that they post of gameplay and just like all the rage quits and the BS, you know, bal- yeah. yeah, and definitely all the balancing. I've seen with- is, uh, Go ahead. All I've seen is the masterminds rage quitting. Right. That's all I've wow. seen. I mean, I've seen it on, like, both ends where it's, like, survivors are, like, no, it's utterly broken. You know, the masterminds are just steamrolling everyone. And then masterminds going, no, no, the survivors are steamrolling me. So I guess everyone is unhappy. Get rid of the steamroller and bring back in the jackhammers. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and yeah, you know, while I you're mean, at I it, you of... might as well get some, get some nice pickaxes, you know, and, I don't know, maybe get, like, a power drill. I mean, I hope that they are able to go back to it at some point to rebalance things i mean i'm also sad that we won't get more masterminds because like the the series itself had a lot of good characters for that so well Well, maybe someday when you have a series based on evil maniacal maniacs unleashing biological horrors in the world you probably do have a good stock for masterminds it's tailor-made i wanted alfred okay i wanted alfred i was just holding out for vincent goldman (laughs) <laughs> Vincent, this is your mother. Please stop being evil. Please. No, Vanessa, do, you, do you mean Alfred or Alexia? <laughs> I mean Alfred. I mean Alfred because of how he handled things in the game mm. over his loudspeaker. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. In all fairness, though, he did try to shoot you. Which is, He's not good at shooting. Mm-hmm. No. But it's still a lot more than other maniacs did. Fair yeah. enough. He he gets points for that. It's it's you got to give him the little you tried sticker. Ding, there he goes. Okay, so uh, next thing is uh, Infinite Darkness, a CGI Netflix series starring Leon and Claire, is set to release in 2021. We don't really know that know that much about it at this point, other than it's about them. 
and it's also a Netflix series and probably cancelled after two seasons yep <laughs> I mean I expected it just to be like a one season um, like mini series sort of thing if we get two series I'll be pleasantly surprised yeah yeah I mean at first I thought it was just a movie anyway so this is just more Leon and Claire Leon and his growing alcoholism <laughs> what i'm kind of curious to see with where it goes with infinite darkness at least is because as far as we know the main format is with these two characters but uh you know it's a it's unfortunate to see yet another aspect you know another medium another adaptation where this is really seems you could do a great anthology show where like every episode is a new scenario kind of the way they did with some of the comics and i'd i'd be super into that but it's same, and part of that I think is just because my concern always with ongoing stories is God, you know, characters when they develop long enough, then the the writer's own quirks start to show up. But I don't know, maybe Stephen Moffat's has burned me over the years. <laughs> oh, you you've suffered from the Moffat wars. I I have, but it's they're it's, there, they're there, and it's but yeah, I guess what I mean there. with anthologies that means that the story gets to be self contained, and so then when that short story is done, you don't have to worry about like, oh, I love this character, and then you know five episodes later, it's like, oh God, what did they do to them? Yeah, but I think the problem with that is that an anthology show you need to have different writers, different uh, voice actors, so it's a constantly changing casting. And Good point. They don't want to spend the money on that. Yeah. Besides, Leon and Claire have been around for so long, they've already had their own detours and into derailment island. So that's right. They, yeah. Okay. So let's. No, never mind. Never mind. I was going to say, have they both each gotten their own <laughs> island yet? You know, and I, and I, I got the confused with uh, Resident Evil Gaiden. It's like, no, 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 that was a boat. Um, well, I mean, Leon went to that terrible uh, RE4 island at the end. Oh, that's okay. That's true. Yeah. God, that was pathetic, wasn't it? It was, yeah, it was not great. Uh, but also, uh, there is going to be a manga uh, by Tokyo Pop, I believe, that is, I guess, uh, I'm not sure whether it's supposed to be an adaptation of the Netflix series or a companion piece to it, but that is also due to be released in 2021 alongside the series. I'd actually be more interested in that. Yeah, the the mangas have been actually pretty interesting and I would like to talk about them in more depth at some point, but... We will probably do an episode where we discuss Resident Evil in um, literature. So the S.D. Perry novels and the mangas. Wildstorm comics. Yeah, Wildstorm comics. I was thinking of those. But God, if we have to do the novels, we're actually going to have to rebuy Caliban Cove and the Umbrella Conspiracy. (laughs) Look, I I just want to do Jill undercover as a college student hunting down a (laughs) werewolf. Oh my God, yes. (laughs) Yes. Oh my God. Yeah, well, it'll work out now with RE Village 8. But we'll talk about that more in a minute. But I don't think Ethan will be done in a Jill wig and a skirt. No, no, he's he's cosplaying as Ark Thompson, so... Oh, that's right, He's yes. already got... He's got his own outfit. Right. So, yeah, speaking of 8, there's been some news recently. Yeah, but um, also... In other uh, actual like TV series stuff, yeah, there's also a live-action TV series about the Wesker children. Yeah. Um, Hooray. Yeah, so, okay. we I think we had discussed this before because rumors had been coming out about this in the spring. and Yeah, we briefly talked about the rumors, and I guess they t- mostly turned out to be accurate, about uh, Jade and Billy Wesker, his daughters moving to New Raccoon City, and it's going to be a split timeline 
first about them as children, like teenagers, and then later on in like a post-apocalyptic blah. I'm just going to say you can't see me now, folks, but I'm shuddering like crazy. Mm. Mm-hmm. No, thank you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Paul is curled up and he's just going to roll away from it. Roll away from the series. And then suddenly this little prince from the cosmos just comes and rolls him up onto a bunch of different stuff. Well, He's in the stars now. You both know my opinion on adaptations of Resident Evil. Yes. They don't exist. It's not not ideal. Well, I don't know. If if you tune into a particular episode of Mystery Death Theater 5000, we may actually... We may actually have a a contrarian uh, moment to that. But... um, And Chris, if you want to air that episode, I will take it to mean you don't want to live anymore. (laughs) (laughs) Ah, the Spencer statement where you come for threats and you stay for the Resident Evil. Mm, Yes, yes. I don't make threats. I make promises. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, promises, promises. Um, Um, The one thing I was going to say regarding the TV show, though, was, uh, again, though, like Infinite Darkness, you know, it's a case of whether it's good or bad, whether we like it or not figure probably just two seasons and we'll be fine and especially because yeah. especially what i'm hearing is that since the restrictions with filming under this the covid19 situation and the different parameters and things like that budgeting has become a much bigger concern for some of these shows because now they're having to add you know thousands of dollars onto uh getting the ppe you know being supplied on set doing regular testing i know some folks that worked on um i think it was one of the uh i think it was the second season of the birch and they were doing testing three times a week, and that's yeah. mm-hmm. that's basically coming. Not only that, but not only that, but they actually have to pay for accommodation if somebody turns out to actually have COVID or they've been exposed to it. So you have to shut down the entire set. Yes, and isolate people for two to three weeks. So that is a massive cost that's being added on to film at the moment. Precisely. Yeah. 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 Exactly. Uh, also, the Resident Evil reboot movie has been cast and is supposedly going to cover the first two games. There's a reboot movie? There was a movie in the first place? <laughs> <laughs> Your opinions on, on the non-existence of the first film series? Well documented. But yeah, uh, I think the casting is good, but uh, adapting the first two games into one film is too many plot points that you can really realistically fit into a two-hour film yeah you're you're spreading too much of a complicated story because you've got to fit in stars you've got to fit in umbrella the betrayal of wesker uh what actually happens to the stars members both alpha and uh, bravo team mm-hmm You've got to cover the aftermath of that with uh, the cover-up by Irons and the RPD. Yep. And then you've got to do the assault on Birkin. Right. The infection of Raccoon City. And then Leon and Claire's disastrous day in Raccoon City. So that's too much to fit into one film. And I kind of feel yeah, it would be much better if they use the first film to set up the second. Mm-hmm. Totally. Yeah, and I, I know Vanessa and I have talked about wanting to adapt Resident Evil, you know, for years. Like, we even had an agreement as friends back in, good God, like, I don't want to mention how many years ago, but that I would write the first and she would write the second. And It's well, it's well known that, that we've 
been friends for like a long ass time and it's about resident evil so like let's just be real it's been like 20 years yeah, yeah. a long time ago least. in the forum far far away right exactly yeah, it, but um the point though is uh, that I was going to make though about regarding because uh, completely agreed i think that you start with the first film and you make that its own soul experience because the games even kind of do this the first game you know scenarios is the house it's the forest it's the kind of nature run amok monsters like the snake and the sharks and the plant and then you have and the spider and the spider yeah and exactly and then you get to the sequel which is urban and it's more mutations and kind of more about the flesh and the g virus and you know there's a very there's specific aesthetics for those things mm-hmm. and so from a design point of view it's like it makes sense because you have these distinctive but connected stories what i have a suspicion they're going to end up doing with this adaptation if they're going to try to combine one and two it's going to probably get turned into a very generic action monster movie um birkin and westerker are going to both be kind of villainous characters i suspect i mean they are what, what i mean is like mastermind and henchmen and then mm-hmm. they're going to use the twist about Wesker being the betrayer to turn him into the mastermind and probably have him kill Birkin within the storyline. And I know everyone's probably thinking, oh, but this is totally different. It's like, exactly. That's what they're going to do. Um, the cover up's going to be going on. They may try to build, they may try to build like the mansion stuff as like a flashback sequence, and, but mostly make it about two mm-hmm. because two has been consistently the most popular in the franchise. And yeah, I can also see Claire being a college student in Raccoon City, and mm-hmm. Chris, if he has a big role in the film, will probably be about getting to Claire as she's trapped in the university or something. And Leon is probably probably going to be downgraded from a rookie cop to maybe campus security. I think he's still considered. Uh, I think he's still listed as RPD. He's listed as RPD. There's some rumors about the the log line for the casting for his character, which has got people concerned. I'm not going to mention that here, just because it is at this point unconfirmed. It has to do with like his his backstory as a cop, and if that is the case, there that was what clued me into. Okay, there's going to be maybe tonal faithfulness, but this is going to be quite the evolution. The two concerns from behind the camera that I have is that the writer that's currently listed is a Greg Russo, and the only things that he's been attached to are the most recent Mortal Kombat film that is supposedly in post production now. Uh, that's the one that's got Cho Taslim as uh, Sub Zero. Yeah, the one by Simon McQuad. And then he has this, and apparently he was attached to De- the Death Note 2 live action for Netflix at one point. So this guy has got, like, <laughs> nothing to his to, the, to his name. And, you know... and that's Oh, not- two projects I had no idea actually existed. I mean, the new Mortal Kombat sounds good. The casting was pretty all right. I, I, I hadn't even heard that there was another one. Yeah, there's, there's another I one. I heard rumors that there was uh, another one, but not necessarily that it had been finished. Yeah, so, I mean, yeah, but um, well, they're really taking away off Paul Anderson's work now. <laughs> <laughs> oh boy! Um, oh boy! So, in terms of the director, it's a case of that it's a it's a skilled director, or at the very least, he has experience of like having done Forty Seven Meters Down and One and Two, and he also did The Strangers Pray at Night, which is kind of his more recent credits. The one that I actually have seen of his was Storage Twenty Four, the Noel Clark monster movie from about I think it's about eight years ago. And probably more than that, I think. No, it's it's 2012. I just looked it up. Oh, um, wow. Ugh, fuck you, time. I mean, it feels like a 2008 movie, though, doesn't it? It feels like it's it's older than that. To it's be good. fair, this year's felt like it's gone for five. <laughs> that is also true. It, 
It's felt both long and incredibly short at the same time, so I have no idea what time is anymore. This is true. Anyway, the just to finish my point about Johannes Roberts is um, I think he has potential. And this could be something that depending on the scope of the budget he's able to have and what he's able to wrangle, like as a director, he can show himself off like as like, okay, this is really good management of this production. But at the same time, what concerns me is that there is also the possibility kind of like Paul Anderson that, you know, you end up with a situation where it's about getting it done. It's not about making a great movie. It's, it's about, it's, it's Mm. about content. You have to create content. Like, fuck that shit. I wanted to make movies when I was seven years old. Now create content. Get the fuck out of here with that. You don't have to worry about content. I mean, there is a story. That's it. You're good. You're good. You don't have to worry about any of that. Just not with Anderson. (laughs) Yeah. But also, yeah, like, I I mean, recently I was, I was seeing the the Twitter threads about um, Anderson and the um, final chapter and the, the lawsuit against him for you know really some reckless endangerment of Mm -hmm. that stunt actress and i mean seriously fuck that guy Mm -hmm. yeah fuck that guy i mean for all i joke about the resident evil films not existent it's always felt like when he's made those films it's just basically him and mila jovovich going i want to add a new room to the mansion well let's do another resident evil film that's what it's always felt like to me. Yeah, there was also some insultingly, like, there really wasn't a story there. So we added a story, and I'm like, fuck you, there wasn't a story there. I mean, look at what we got now with the reboot. We got so much story, we can't even fit it. Exactly. And the thing is, well, like, you really can't call what Anderson had was a story because he's just basically <laughs> married his lead actress and made her... He, he's basically married his O.C., <laughs> that's right yeah. yeah i saw that i saw a that a bunch of a bunch of like loosely connected events that keep getting both retconned back in and then retconned out and then back in again and they like it's the same guy but he can't keep any of it straight and uh you know what fuck fuck it fuck it it's can't, can't go on about this <laughs> it's inconsistent but ironically enough inconsistency is a hallmark of resident evil yes yeah but not like this. Not like this. Not like this. Yeah. Let's let's talk about let's talk about Resident Evil Eight, aka Resident Evil Village, now because there's been at least two trailers since the last time we talked, and you know some at least some news about that. Uh, but I think Vanessa, you and I also want to confirm the fact that we're not going to call it Village. It's, no, it's eight. It, eight. Yeah, it's right there in the title. You you can see the Roman numerals for five. One, one, one. It's Resident Evil 8. Yep. Mm-hmm. If you didn't want me to call it 8, you wouldn't have put the Roman numeral in there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, so, I, I'm definitely in the same boat. Sorry. Big brain talk. But, like, also, um, hey, kind of werewolves now? <laughs> kind of? Kind of. I'm still going with the idea that these are people with hypertrichosis. Hmm. So... If you've ever seen, like, carnivals where they had, like, the bearded lady or the wolfman. Yeah. It's people who have excessive body hair. And I'm just kind of thinking, like, they've treated these people with a genetic condition like animals. They've been infected with whatever. They've become animals. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm thinking a combination of Ethan and Mia's baby's fetus power... And plagas, because their faces 
make me think of El Gigante. Also, yeah, okay, that's a good point. Mm, like, Interesting. The facial structure is very similar to me. Like he had every iteration of that particular monster has a very distinct face, and like the stuff we've seen of like the roaring, you know, hairy guy just yeah. really reminds me of it. El Gigante had a very overly pronounced face. Mm. Oh yeah, yeah, that, them, <laughs> them bone structure. But um, what's his secret? Maybe he's born is he with a it. model. Maybe he grinds the bones to make his bread. <laughs> he probably does. He's coming out from the mines of Moria. I mean, he might as well because it's in not Spain or whatever. And now we're in not Europe again. We're, we're in not Eastern Europe, but Eastern Europe. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we're in not Transylvania, but it's basically yeah. Transylvania because they've taken a castle from Romania and brought it into the game. Mm-hmm. And they're like, but it's not It's not that though. And I'm like, okay. But here's here's my counterpoint. Why isn't anybody wearing any clothes from the last fucking century? Why do you keep going back to this well? Resident Evil is still a, a world that takes place in modern times. It's still, you know, like look at these look at these characters. Why aren't they decked out like in denim at the very least, like looking like they came from the 80s if you wanted to be like, "Oh, oh, they're they're not up to date." It's Eastern Europe. Let them all wear tracksuits. Oh, I, I was thinking yeah, the same just, thing. Yeah, get, just, get us a tracksuit. Just suits. something. Yeah, just it. just throw me just throw me a bone and stop making them all look like extras from fucking Frankenstein. It's driving me nuts. Uh, that's just it. That's just it. That's my line of thinking. Is that have they been researching this by looking at old Universal horror films? But that's usually the case. I mean, I, I discussed this a bit on, you know, when we've discussed Village in the past and that there's this sort of obsession when Capcom does these these projects. And it's like they'll take like a certain visual aesthetic inspiration and just go so whole hog into that, that like logic gets completely throughout the window. But by the same token, if they have an American city, it will look like an American city. If they have a Japanese city, it will look like a Japanese city. If there's a Chinese city, it looks like a Chinese city. So why is it then, whenever they visit Europe, it looks like it's from fucking Transylvania? It's, it is really baffling, and it's like, well, we wanted to go back to like the RA4 aesthetic, and I'm like, did you have to, though? There's a lot of problems there. Yeah. 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 Like, I'm really excited because, like, it, I know a lot of people did have some issues with Ethan, but, like, I still liked him as a character. So mm-hmm. I had no problem seeing him again. Uh, I was, you know, fine with generally the setup of it, but it's it's the, like, committed to the RE4 aesthetic, but, like, RE4, but now it's in first person and, and even more intense that, like, just kind of turns me off to it. And Europe has had electricity in houses yeah, yeah. for over a hundred years. It's it's so puzzling. It's like why do you, why do you guys think this is what Europe is like? I mean, I can tell you this right now. I live on the western edge of Europe. We've got electricity. Oh, you, I thought Wait, I thought you, you were I thought you were using fairy magic to get into this podcast. A summoning circle. Yeah. No, okay. I've got a giant hamster wheel with your name on it, Chris. <laughs> I was waiting for that some sort of response to that. <laughs> well, it also it also runs on movie references. Oh, that's true. Yes, yeah. No, that's that's a good and that's a good just, power. Just, that's you know, I actually I uh, I self sustaining. Yeah, no, the movie reference thing. I actually that's how I power the projector in the in the media room. 
That's why I have to We're keep putting We're going to be talking about projectors there. anyway in Resident <laughs> Evil, I think. Yeah. The, um, I mean, hey, Chris, I mean, we did get confirmation that Chris is the one who brings Ethan to the village now. Like, right. that is the last update, which is like, okay, I mean, that's fine. Yep. I mean, like, I've, I've killed that's your fine. wife. I'm going to take you to a village in Eastern Europe, which seems to be stuck <laughs> in the 1900s, but mm-hmm. we're going to have fun. So, sure, Redfield. This is the worst field trip you've ever taken me mm-hmm. on. It's the only field trip you've taken me on. I, I I hate your turtleneck. You know who wore it better? Wesker. Oh, I like the turtleneck. Yeah, I like the turtleneck. Yeah, that's. I'm saying I'm saying that's that is the kind of stuff that Ethan could throw at him to to make him feel bad. That's true. Yeah, but then yeah. again, but then again, like Ethan trying to talk ass to Chris Redfield in his chunk melon field form. <laughs> it's feel like pretty that's, hilarious. It's it's like the. Uh, it's like imagine DJ Qualls trying to uh, tough talk, I don't know, Dave Batista. No, no, it, it kind of feels like Wiley e. Coyote realizing he's fucked up and the ball's about to hit him and he just takes out a tiny little umbrella. <laughs> That's okay. And a tiny That's little a... sign that says, yikes. Right, there we go. Oh, <laughs> tiny this, little so... red, uh, red and white umbrella. <laughs> <laughs> Goodness gracious, my God. So I mean, um, wait. So, also, yeah. Sorry, go ahead. What? Sorry, sorry. Please go ahead. No, 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 no. I'm, I'm, I'm okay, making okay. stupid jokes. Don't worry about it. Go okay. ahead. Well, just uh, there was some stuff about yeah. There's going to be obviously a, uh, a store kind of setup and a a new kind of merchant, but it's still unclear whether it is that old lady or somebody else that they've haven't shown off yet. Also, how about when they trolled literally everyone with like the guy playing several minutes of re8 and then just only focused on him and mm-hmm. and none of the none of the game it was like wow that's yeah. a real dick move yeah actually. that was that that's, was that was pretty that's cool. american strategy that's gonna backfire on them yeah and I'm, i think it already did people were fucking pissed. oh they were pissed yeah i'm so glad i i didn't yeah. get up early for that one i got up early for the previous one and i you know it's it's funny that it felt like such a clusterfuck you know, because mm, of just there was because there was nothing. They is literally was show the same trailer they had revealed a week before. Do a sort of discussion video that shows like maybe a second and a half of new in-game footage, and then yeah, it's mostly the tunnel thing, right? Like I, him crawling through the tunnel. Uh, it was the tu- actually it was an alternate angle of the um of him coming into the main hall of the the, mm. the manor or the castle re- room area. Um, which oh, it suddenly yes. just hit me. That looks like the castle interior, the uh, the manor interior in um, Underworld, in the first Underworld. I suddenly just realized that. Um, mm. It's like, why does it look familiar? Anyway. I can imagine there are going to be a vampire werewolf aesthetic with that being referenced. Oh, certainly. They are confirmed. Yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah. But, but the... Um, um, <laughs> it was even to... like It was so rough of a, of a showcase at TGS that... I think it was IGN's translator that I was listening to. They had not been given any sort of a script to go off of. And so they were having oh, so to... So tra- they have to free ball it. Oh, Jesus. And they're dropping things. They're apologizing. They're like... Oh. They are... Like, there's there's some stuff they're not able to translate just because, like, it's going too fast. Um, so it was... it was TGS overall this year was definitely, you know, pretty, uh, pretty rough shot. But... Yeah. But that that was Which, like, it just, yeah, yeah. Because it's it was, a shame because Capcom is usually very good with the 
its presentations. Oh yeah, and uh, and yeah, they're usually better than this. Exactly, which is and it's. I mean, I mean, yeah, COVID twenty uh, twenty is is like a nightmare hellscape. So you want to cut them some slack, but still, it feels like some unforced errors that even with the situation being what it is, you could still avoid this. Yeah. (laughs) You could still avoid this pretty easily. And there is some controversy, though, because it kind of seems now, because of COVID, um, they might not necessarily make the projected January release date. It could be pushed back to April, I think, from what I've heard. Oh, and I've I've heard that's was it? I, actually what I had heard was that January was like what they were hoping for like six seven months ago. It got pushed. It was looking like April is kind of the ballpark, and now there because the idea is they're trying to get it for the fiscal year, and yeah. mm. the looks of things is no, it's going to next fiscal year. And I'm wondering if that's why they're putting more of like the marketing resources behind Monster Hunter. Because the, like the showcase at TGS for Monster Hunter was fantastic, you know, and actually looks really good. And I'm wondering if it's that they know that's going to be their moneymaker to keep the company, you know, doing well through this fiscal year. Because, I mean, this is... This, well, this, any this, online game that requires um, updates or has any new packs, be it DLC or anything that, will be a good moneymaker. It's, it's when you have a full new release, that's the risk. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah, all all I'd ever heard was 2021, so I I had no idea of like any more solid release date than that. Well, we've got 365 choices then. Yeah. <laughs> it sure does <laughs> narrow it down. But um there's also the second trailer as well, which is uh I think is being nicknamed the fairy tale trailer. Mhm. Which what are your thoughts thoughts on that? I I like that they tried to expand into a a different style that is mm. far different than anything Resident Evil has done before. So that aspect I'm I'm fine with. Uh again, it's still mostly just the committed to RE4 weird aesthetic that bothers me and yeah. at least the fairy tale aspect of it doesn't really pull that in there are a number of rumors as well that the fairy tale reflects the journey that ethan's gonna have to go on Mm -hmm. yeah Yeah. i I like it i like it as a framing device yeah right we get those sort of clues about things which is the interesting thing also you know as we've because i know we have our wild speculative theories about you know how much of this is really happening and things like that and so far we're kind of taking this at face value but you know it's um It'll be interesting to see, especially with how much the uh, the storybook, you know, is very fleshed out, you know, visually, um, you know, and, and as we've said, you know, that Capcom has this tendency, like when they go into like, this is the fantasy, this is the world of the game that we're creating, you know, regardless of logic, regardless of realism, um, you know, I'm, I'm just kind of curious to see kind of where that goes and how that ends up just playing out especially with regard to you know the elements of like the, the idea of even like the fetus because often a lot of fairy tales have mm-hmm. children as a uh, as a core element um does it mean it's a sacrificial child or that they're waiting for like a second coming um you know what what is it that's you know being sought here so you know it's, it's it there is a lot of interesting aspects i like the trailer it wasn't as strong as the announcement trailer to me but the new visuals like the environments you get to see um 
look fantastic. I'm glad that it looks like they did a better job kind of pre-rendering this so it had more frames because I noticed the announcement trailer had a lot of frame drops or at the very least like scenes that should have been running at like 30 looked like they were running at 12 or 15 FPS. So yeah. The only thing good. I will say about the tra- uh, Fairy Tale though is that the one constant about Fairy Tales is that they are meant to impart a lesson to children. And Oftentimes, like if the dragon gets killed, you're not telling the kid that dragons exist. You're telling them if they do exist, they can be killed. You're telling them that there are scary things in the world. They can be stopped. But there's also the cautionary fairy tale, which is what this one feels like. It's the little girl runs away from her mother and gets lost in the forest. So you're telling someone when you run away from the family or whatever authority, you're putting yourself at risk, which is what I think Ethan will be doing. Right. Hmm. I still think that Chris is not going to be the main villain because I cannot see Capcom taking one of their biggest characters and one of the most successful franchises they've got and completely turn them into a villain. Oh no, no! Yeah, I can gonna, see that. Yeah, it has to have an out. Yeah, it, it's going to be Ethan strays away from Chris and ends up in trouble, which is my thought on what the fairy tale is. I'm also still not one hundred percent convinced that Mia is true facts, never coming back dead. She's gonna rickroll him at the end. <laughs> yeah. I mean, like, look, I understand that you guys said that you cured her and everything, but in RE7 alone, I I shot her 20 times and hit her with an axe. In the and, neck. Mm-hmm. Yeah, in the neck. And she still came back from all of that. So, nah. Yeah, it's just going to be... It, it, it's not going to be what it appears to be anyway. Yeah. Like, I can understand Ethan might think that she's dead because, like, I don't know, her resurrection is taking too long. It's I don't have as active a virus now, so it's like delayed reaction resurrection. But I don't see her for real being still dead yet. I just hope I need to... more. I need more evidence. Mm-hmm. I need to see her dead on a slab with a wide incision in her chest. I, I need I need them to get to the end of the game and she's still dead for me to believe that she's dead. Exactly. Oh, yeah. no, no. Understandable. While Capcom never does a joke ending for Resident Evil, I'm kind of hoping there is one with this and it's just like <laughs> it just turns out that Ethan's been sleeping during like a Universal Monsters Marathon. Oh no. <laughs> and Mia's <laughs> yeah, just kind of like shaking him awake like wake up. I would take wake that. Up. Chris is here. Oh gosh. Yeah, the um and and the nightmare begins again. Right. Yeah. Or yeah, it's For like or it's it's like Nightmare City, right? You know, and then yeah. it, and so it's it's like oh no, yeah, no. There you go. You know, it's funny you mentioned the old uh, monster movie references because uh, I was looking through the trailer again, and um, that's what we've mentioned. The the merchant character seems to be this character that has a very Charles Lawton sort of uh, body type. It looks like. Which I think is an interesting nod because uh, Charles Lawton famously played uh, Quasimodo in the old Hunchback of Notre Dame, and um, 
regarding the fairy tale aspect. He also was the director of Night of the Hunter in the 1950s, which is considered a classic now, but was a famous flop in its day, but is also considered sort of a, a sort of a more contemporary fairy tale about children getting lost and, you know, being chased and pursued by this this figure um, of a sort of cult-like nature. So it's like, okay, I can, I'm picking up what they're putting down a little bit. I'm also kind of guessing as well that there's an old woman in the game. She's being listed as an ally for Ethan at some stage. I'm kind of wondering, yeah. though, is she going to be like Baylor Lugosi's mother in The Wolfman? I was wondering that, too. Yeah. Hmm. Interesting theory. Um, if she's an ally, the other thing also I'm wondering is, are they going to do an upgrade tree in that she gives you, like, secret stuff that, like, boosts you up? I don't know. Speculation. Speculation. Uh, I don't want upgrade trees. <laughs> Neither do I. Neither do I, I. I like, I like the classic survival horror aspect where the upgrades come from progression and finding new stuff. Yeah, you want your upgrade to be your gun. Your new gun makes a lot of boom. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> it bigger. It bigger boom now. Take out monsters. Yes. Like I, I've already accepted that. Yeah, there's going to be a a store so there's a certain amount of upgrades that probably are going to be purchased but i would still like to be able to find stuff i I think that that kind of pacing is the the best version i would just like games i would actually just like if the if the store was just basically like okay so i've got handgun bullets i've got some herbs uh i've also got some body armor okay you upgrade my gun i'm sorry it's a gun shop do I have a workbench behind me? I sell you items. I don't upgrade shit. <laughs> I sell you. You do your own work, buddy. It's like, it's like can, Look, you, can you can you address the spring on the recoil on this handgun? It's like, uh, no, no, no. I cannot. Ma- I cannot magically make this gun do more damage when the damage is coming from the bullets. <laughs> That's video game bullets for you. That's video yeah. game bullets for you. Yeah. Oh God, playing evil so weapons th- been that way. But anyway, yeah. I think that's all the news we have, unless there's anything we've missed. Yeah. Uh, no, I think that's that's about it. So uh, let's move on to the main topic, which is Resident Evil. All right. So now we're going to move on to our main topic, Resident Evil One. Uh, most of it is going to be about the original this time, and we'll move on to the remake next time. So. Yes. Chris, please tell us some of the development history, because I know you took copious amounts of notes about it. Copious, yes. Well, uh, indeed. So I, I know that some There's of the, reams of paper here. It's, it's, it's fine. It's fine. Just shuffle it to the side. It'll be, we'll, we'll recycle it later. Um, now, ah, avalanche! <laughs> the uh when covering resident evil one i i know that there's a lot of wonderful people that have covered the backstory of the making of it's been you know talked about through videos about sweet home and uh sphere hunter Susie has done an amazing video about it so i'm just going to kind of give sort of the overview um yeah. in the early 1990s uh tokoru fujiwara who was the producer of like sweet home ghouls and ghosts and a plethora of 1990s heyday capcom games for the consoles um he saw an opportunity to work on a new horror game when the PlayStation was coming around and realized that the ideas visually he had wanted to do with Sweet Home could be possibly accomplished there. Now, Sweet Home, as we've a lot of people say, oh, that's the precursor to Resident Evil. The interesting thing is 
Capcom is one of the only companies to have done great license games during the Nintendo and Super Nintendo era. And Sweet Home is actually a license game. It's based on a Kiyoshi Kurosawa movie from 1989. I believe it was released the same year on, on the NES. And it was uh, it was actually, you know, some people say like, oh, they were intending to do a new, a new Sweet Home game. And actually, the rights of the license, I think, had lapsed by that point. So they needed to come up with something different. So Fujiwara had been working with Shinji Mikami and had essentially mentored him, uh, you know, to some extent at the company. And Mikami at this point had worked on like the Disney's Aladdin game. Uh, he worked on the Goof Troop game for this as a Super Nintendo. And kind of it, it, coincidentally, you know, Mikami today kind of holds sort of a similar position where, you know, like Ikumi Nakamura, Suda51, et cetera, have been sort of mentored by him, you know, since then. And Fujiwara goes to Mikami and says, I want to make a new like entertainment game. I want to make a new something. It's kind of something similar to Sweet Home. And, you know, basically let's figure this out. And this kind of the overview that I've been able to ascertain is that for around six months, Mikami's designing the documents of like how to put this thing together, basically solo. And, you know, I don't know to what extent the team, you know, started to come together, but, you know, this is somewhere around, I think, circa 94, late 94, early 95. And, Eventually, you know, things start to develop, but uh, in terms of the 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 kind of the process behind the scenes that, you know, often doesn't get talked about, you know, we often consider Mikami the father of survival horror and things like that. And in my research, one thing that was kind of cool to discover was how uh, Koji Oda, who uh, was one of the programmers on the original game and actually went on to work on as the director of Resident Evil Zero, and I'll get back to that in a minute as well. Um, he was already also starting to play with prototypes of a horror game proposed for the Super Nintendo, or sorry, the Super Famicom, I, I guess would be more proper to say for the snobs out there. And then uh, Kenichi Iwao, who is, I, I should I should have prefaced that, you know, I will hopefully not butcher these names as much as possible. I-W-A-O is something that my, my brain just can't seem to translate very well into speaking. But um, he ended up coming on as kind of scenario writer. And was able to come in as, as I think the, the Resident Evil fandom wiki says it came in, the original time was midway through development. Uh, management was opposed to Shinji Mikami's disinterest in writing a script, and he reluctantly had the story changed. Um, and Kenichi was the one who facilitated that. Um, and there's some really good interviews that you can find about him and things of that nature. But a lot of the elements of like the, the virus umbrella, the kind of the character archetypes that became Chris, Jill, Barry, Wesker, Rebecca, most of that comes from him. And, um, you know, it's the element of it being a team effort, but yeah, it's, um, the game was eventually, you know, as we all know, was launched March 22nd, 1996. And, um, yeah, and then things kind of happened from there. So that's kind of like the elements of the development, but it was a pretty interesting deep dive when you go into right. it. Um, so here's the th prompt, I guess, to get questions and get discussion going. So the development team included these five names, um, and I've mentioned one already. But I want to see if you can guys can catch what they all have in common. So these were folks that did scene direct, scene development, scenario writing, programming, etc. So the names are Koji Oda, Hideki Kamiya, Haruki Kato, Yasuhiro Anpo, and Kyo, Kyohiko Sakata. So what do you think those names have in common? They all work at Capcom. A lot of them went on to continue doing other Resident Evil games. On exactly. Off, really. Vanessa got it. Um all of those those persons went on to direct other games in the franchise. And it's interesting, you know, we've seen Resident Evil evolve, and, you know, we'll probably discuss that as we get into, like, the remake and how the series changed. But yet, 
both the Resident Evil 2 and Resident Evil 3 remake, as well as 5, Revelations, and Code Veronica, have all had people who worked on the original game be at some point, you know, it's at a rather high level of the development team. So anyway, that's kind of my initial... Which makes sense. Yeah, go ahead. Which makes sense because, like, people who've worked on the initial project will know various aspects of production. And if they're if another game is being produced, they will be brought on if they're available. So it makes sense that a lot of them would go on to develop newer Resident Evils. It's pretty neat. It's pretty cool. And um, I didn't have a chance to look through all the interviews because I, I forgot that these had even happened. But during around the 20, uh, 20th anniversary in 2016, they had done some series of videos with these uh, with some of these persons um, who were at the time working on you know the Resident Evil 2 remake. And they have an interview, I think, a video interview with Koji Oda from Resident Evil Zero because that was getting the HD remaster and things like that. Um, but you can find those out there as well. I don't want to just like simply just parrot the same stuff because, you know, that's not sure. That's not exactly why you guys are all here. So, right. I mean, what, what I think is interesting was that, that they did have that like co-op footage, like very mm-hmm. brief amounts of it of like Chris and Jill together in the mansion. And that was kind of blew my mind. Yeah, because that was probably the most surprising thing to find out if uh, researcher for this episode was that the original idea was that there would be a co-op, but also an AI partner. Mm-hmm. Which, which, yeah, God, the, the idea didn't even come to fruition for another, or at least wasn't able to be like fully implemented for like another five or six years, you know, all things yeah, considered. With, oh, yeah. uh, Zero, right? Right. Well, that's if you're talking about co-op, but the idea of an AI yeah. partner would eventually be completed in uh, Resident Evil 2. Mm. Okay, okay, that's okay, that's a good, oh, yeah, a good yeah. point. Yeah. yeah, yeah, you can, you can, yeah, you can count uh, especially Ada. Mm-hmm. She does she does active like active shooting if Leon starts uh, starts attacking. Right. So actually, yeah, that's true. Yeah. I was thinking of like somebody that was like with you for like almost the whole game. Right. Yeah, that's what I was thinking too. Like a partner system where yeah, the the game experience, that's... you know, yeah. Yeah. No, but two seems more like accurate to like the spirit of what they were going for in the original mm-hmm. yeah but i th- think as well like you know you're getting the limits of technology and not being really aware of what the playstation could do at that time mm-hmm. so. which is the uh sorry i, I just to, to mention about the technology is um and also was time um, one of the things I learned in a lot of the interviews is that a lot of people didn't believe in the project at the company, including most of the developers. And so they even, some of them looking back say like, we probably could have done some of that stuff. We just didn't have the time and the money to do it. Hmm. Which is funny because Resident Evil would eventually go on to be Capcom's biggest moneymaker. I think it's either Resident yeah. Evil, uh, Street Fighter or Monster Hunter. Yeah, I think the the current biggest, like the most successful Capcom franchise, I believe at the moment is uh, is the Monster Hunter franchise because Monster Hunter World just like pushed it way over because that that was a very consistent series, whereas Resident Evil has had like lots of gaps. But um, the franchise as a whole has been one of Capcom's most successful cash cows. Absolutely. Oh yeah. Oh totally. Yeah. I mean, when you think Capcom, it's very high up there. Exactly. When you think Capcom, you think Street Fighter, Resident Evil. Mega Man, you know, though that's the stuff you think of. 100%. Mm-hmm. Also, wasn't like, uh, did they also toy around with first person view mode for a while? They, they did. did. Um, 
Yes. Um, so I have some notes about that. Uh, so one thing I'm going to be mentioning as quite a bit and referencing is that uh, Archipel or Archipel is a, uh, it's a documentary series you can watch on YouTube. And their latest project is Archipel Caravan. And as of this recording, there's one interview episode up with uh, Shinji Mikami uh, for his sort of, it's an anniversary of his 30, 30th year in the video game industry. And he talks about how he stated the goal was to make the game first person as it, he felt that was like the scariest way to experience it. And he felt that the pre-rendered backgrounds and thus the third person perspective were a result of just getting around the technological limitations. Because, you know, for reference, the only like first person kind of game that games that were starting to come out on the PlayStation was like Kingsfield. And when you look at Kingsfield, I mean, that is incredibly primitive, you know, like that. And, um, what was the other one jumping flash was another one, but, uh, and Mikami interestingly mentions this interview. He doesn't like the fixed camera system. He feels it's too remote from the experience. And it's funny because I, I honestly feel the opposite most of the time because like, uh, and this actually uh, harkens back to like what we were talking about with like RE8 stuff. They still won't won't show us Ethan's face and they keep trying to use it. It's like, oh, you know, like player avatar, you know, you're in that guy's shoes. And I'm like, I don't care about myself in these situations. I care about this guy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I that's think why. You're... Sorry, but like, I, I mean, just that, like, that's why the the camera angles uh, ended up working for me because that I, I actually identify more with them when I can see them. And the camera angles ratchet up the horror because if you're in third person and you hear something crunching or squelching around a corner. You can't, like, you can't edge up and use the camera to see what's around the corner. You're relying more on your what you're hearing to fill in the gap, and it's not a pretty sight. Exactly. Well, and I, I was just playing um, Director's Cut, uh, Arrange Mode, and Resident Evil Remake last night. In the range mode, they put dogs in the first floor hallway by the um, the medicine room, the medicine save room on the west wing of the first floor. Right. And so I, I had to take out two of the dogs because, I mean, I just you're, you start really underleveled in many respects. And that's why they give you so many guns so fast. And so there's this moment where I've taken out two and I can hear the other dog down the corner and I'm waiting for that damn thing to make its way over to me and trying to like. And so there's that anticipation, right? That you're like, in a few steps, just try to get the AI to pathfind to you and get its animation loop to run at you and actually find you. And like that anticipation, I think you get from the fixed camera angles and you don't quite get it from the first person where there's almost like, because your view perspective has almost like too much agency in some respects. Yeah, it's, it is a sense of anticipation and dread. And Mm. I understand why a lot of people, um, prefer first person in that like it's up close and personal to them and that's why they prefer it but i i still end up feeling that the opposite for me works i i like seeing them i like the tension building of waiting for the enemy to come closer to you and i mean even Mm -hmm. even the remakes of two and three kind of play around with that even with the amount of camera control you have because they still pull yeah. it kind of like close enough that like you can't see like infinitely. So there's no. still stuff around corners that could you could hear. Mm-hmm. It's, uh, it's also just to just to quickly add, I feel like that's partly the level design, I think, mm-hmm. elevates that. Yeah. They've designed design it around that perspective. It's made for it. 
Yeah, I think specifically. the thing about first-person shooters is that there's a sense of empowerment because they're saying, you're the character. Well, you know, if I was playing Resident Evil, I'd get killed in the first or, first or second room. Yep, 100%. But the fact that you're telling me, oh, you know, you're the character. No, you're telling me I'm the badass with the vast array of weapons, enemies that will explode when I shoot them. And the training. That goes mm-hmm. along with that. That does not scare me. That is empowering. That is mm-hmm. that is not a horror game. And this might be blasphemy, but I don't consider Doom a horror game because you're tearing through things. You're not cowering in fear. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the Dooms, the original Doom has a mood that is creepy, but a lot of that, again, is that buildup of anticipation, and a lot of that's from the level design. But we've, yeah, no, this is, I, yeah. that's at least my feeling, because I agree with you. I, you know, especially when you look at how Doom evolved, like even straight into Doom 2, Doom 2 is not scary. But, but just kind of go back to my point before we get uh, straight off topic there. Mm-hmm. With, oh, with the fixed camera angle, there is a detachment that actually creates more fear because you're watching this character. Yes, you might be in control of it, but you're watching them in what can end up being a helpless situation. And what's kind of helped in recent years is the fact that the death graphics have become more graphic. You can Mm. see someone's throat being torn out. And in the original Resident Evil, if you got killed by a zombie... Your character collapses and the zombie is chowing down on them, mimicking that iconic scene with the first zombie. That's terrifying. And I'm kind of glad Capcom decided to go with the fixed camera angle. Yeah. Agreed. Um, Regarding the fixed camera, I don't want to belabor this point too much, but I was curious, you know, we've, because I know the three of us have discussed this on streams and different games and LPs and stuff, is the use of technology to expand on it. And I was reminded, this keeps coming back in my mind, you know, building fear and tension with how a a fixed camera can also guide like a director and guide the imagery. And I was thinking of that bit in Song of Horror where, you, Paul, you remember this, where um, the camera panned down with the woman at the dinner table or the doll at the dinner table. Yeah. And the camera suddenly comes in and she, you can like see through the doll's head. Like, yeah, there's so many techniques I think it can use. Yeah, it's it, you get a lot of very unique ways to portray a scene and also tension. Especially like if you could bring in something like a Dutch tilt because mm-hmm. straight away that's creating a tone for the room or for the scene. And you don't get that in a first person shooter. But yeah, uh, so in terms of the development, the um, I'm trying to look up some other things. Oh yeah, so when I, as I mentioned that there was a, um, the person who was kind of the main credited story writer, or one of the main persons who contributed the story, uh, Kenichi Iwao, again, apologies on the pronunciation. Um, so he had actually, like, you know, became known as a story writer or a scenario planner at Capcom, and he, he even mentions, you know, that when you're 
end quote from the interview. Honestly, there isn't really a job where you only write a scenario for a game. Because even with Biohazard, I had to make a game flowchart and make a map with events, which is quite different from just writing. And uh, before this, he had worked on um, another fantastic Capcom game from the same period, uh, Demon's Crest, in kind of a similar uh, similar fashion. And the, he also mentioned in terms of like, we're talking about like agency and fear and tension. And one of the cool things, obviously, about the game is the limited ammunition and resources. Now, it sounds like he was one of the proponents of pushing for that, like, you know, we're going to you're going to limit the resources. But I mean, as we experienced when we ourselves tried Sweet Home recently, um, that, that's also a legacy of that. But he mentioned another interesting inspiration point was a roguelike game from the MSX called Alcazar the Forgotten Fortress. Um Interesting thing is, is that, you know, that's another game where, like, you basically go through, like, randomized layouts of of castles, basically, and then have to, like, find whatever resources you can and try to survive. And, um, you know, that's that's kind of the interesting, you know, thing to me about the way that Resident Evil also, like, when you consider the arrange mode and the battle modes and some of these, like, kind of, and especially, like, you see, like, it's a game that people started to do randomizer mods to then randomized positions randomized rooms like each room leads yeah. to a different room that is supposed to on the map mm. and it's very interesting stuff anyway just want to make sure that that detail was uh partly that detail was uh made uh come forward yeah no that's that is neat yeah resident evil though is a game that has quite a few references to other properties mm-hmm. either as tributes or just plain lifted. I mean, like, you can see this with every enemy in the game. So, obviously, you've got the zombies who are quite obviously from Romero's uh, Living Dead film. Well, Dead films. Right. You've got the spiders, which were a staple of every B-movie horror in from the 50s. Mm-hmm. The dogs... I've learned were kind of a reference more to, especially because they're Dobermans. There was a very short spate of dog horror films in the sixties and seventies, mm-hmm. and they tend to. Yeah, use, uh, I was just going to say, obviously, um, the Omen sequence. The Omen being oh, one, yeah. but I mean, like a lot of the times they use Dobermans because they're a terrifying breed of dog. Yeah, I've met a few, but um, you know, you've got some. Blatantly obvious ones as well. You've got Neptune, which is a reference to Jaws. Plan 42 is a reference to Little Shop of Horrors. Which, looking back now, is not that surprising. Mm-hmm. No. No, it's not. But um, two of the surprising ones would be the, um, the Hunters and the Chimeras. So the Hunters, with their clicking of the other claws as they walk that like the fact that they can use doors they're very intelligent they screech they're reptilian they're the raptors from Jurassic Park Mm -hmm. and the most chilling ones of all would be um, the chimeras because not only are they a reference to David Cronenberg's The Fly they're physically resembling Martin Brundle in The Fly 2 yeah, actually, that I hadn't thought about that, but they, yeah, God. Yeah, there's a lot of references throughout and tributes throughout the game, which you really only kind of realize on a deep dive like this because it's not something you notice, but when you do, you really start to appreciate it more. Yeah, there's a, it's very much 
a love letter to the genre. And it's, it's, I think it's, it's very telling to me that part of Resident Evil and also the original Silent Hill's success comes from a sense of passion that is put into it. Mm. In the case of like Silent Hill, they said that they wanted, they didn't want to do externalized horror monsters. You know, they wanted to do something that matched the horror, the, the American horror that they were interested in, which was like the works of like Stephen King, Ira Levin, and et cetera. Yeah. And then when you have with Resident Evil though, it's like, yeah, like it's the ultimate, it's the ultimate B movie video game. Creature feature. Yeah. Well, Resident Evil is a love letter to the B movies of like, the 50s through the 80s. Absolutely. So, yeah. Silent Hill is a love letter to psychological horror films like Rosemary's Baby. And I, I know I know that's a weird one to actually bring up, but it's just the fact that there are quite strong psychological themes throughout that film. And it kind of comes up as well throughout Silent Hill. It, it is psychological horror at its best. Silent mm. Hill. Mm-hmm. Miss you, Silent Hill. To Silent Hill, yeah. Miss, uh, side note, miss you. Yeah, the, the um, gone but never forgotten. Yes, indeed. Yeah, there was there was another note I actually lost my train of thought because dressed trashing by Silent Hill. Oh yes, okay. The other thing regarding development, um, that's a funny. This is a funny story, and it's I love that it gets brought up in the in Kenichi's the Kenichi interview, um, and he doesn't. It's not until that moment it suddenly hits him like, oh, yeah. So a fascinating fact, many devs from the original Resident Evil, including the room, one of the room designers, the scenario and story writer, Kenichi, one of the character designers and effects programmer designer, various modelers, all worked on Parasite Eve 2. That tracks. Yeah, you can kind of see the, some of the hallmarks there. Yeah. As if Square's blatant, we want to make our turn this into our own Resident Evil wasn't blatant enough, right? Yeah, no. Uh, Parasite Eve 2 is is very, very Resident Evil. Mm-hmm. Although with some of its Final Fantasy elements, you're kind of wondering were they trying to make <laughs> Final Evil or Resident Fantasy? Mm. I mean, I'd argue that it just kind of became, you know, the first game at least was very much its own thing. I know that was very common to say, yeah, because the, the fantasy evil or, you know... Um, you know, it was or Final Evil, etc. Was was very that was a common term I remember in the game magazines. But I don't know. I don't want to get distracted too much yeah. about Parasite Eve. But I I have a I always feel like it's 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 its own beast, and that's why, always, again one of the can always do a one off salute to Parasite Eve someday. Yeah. Um, going back through my notes, um, Paul, I found something you might find interesting. Um, one of the big inspirations for the way that the mansion is explored and has been a kind of a constant, he said it's been a constant inspiration in general, but he said it did inspire him for Resident Evil was he was a big fan of the fighting fantasy books by Livingston and Jackson. Yeah. I love those. I had a feel. Yeah. So I was like, ah, I think Paul's going to like that factoid. Yeah. Um, fun stuff. There is a kind of a, there is actually a very similar flow between those old books, which, folks, if you don't know what they were, they're um, choose your own adventure. So you'd start off at like chapter one, and you'd get sent to chapter fifteen or sixteen or something. Every choice you made would have like eventually lead you to either the end of the story, or you getting killed in some assways manner. So much fun. Yeah, they're good. They're good stuff. They're very good stuff. It makes a lot of sense that choose your own adventure style books were an inspiration for the layout. Like that, that does definitely 
have that feeling in the Spencer estate. Yeah, because there's there's a very similar flow. Because you could start off on one side of the mansion or go to the other side, but you're still limited in that. Well, you can go so far here, you have to go over here now to continue on. Yeah, it's like you, you have to get a certain set of items in order to progress, but how you unlock the doors and like what order you want to unlock the rooms once you have that key is kind of left up to you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you do find a sword key as well. <laughs> hey, that's right. Hey. Does that, you know, one of the things we were wanting to do is just kind of dive into the first game. I mean, this feels like a good segue to go into that. Um, because, you know, I, I obviously we played this for our, our Let's Play channel uh, just a couple of months ago. Yeah. And I was I was reviewing it recently uh, or last night, basically, or you know, last couple of days. One thing I find really interesting about the original Resident Evil is that it is pretty nonlinear for exploring the mansion. There's kind of an, or, you know, there's certain, as we're saying, there's certain barricades, but even sometimes when you get certain keys mm-hmm. is kind of up to you. Yeah, but you're still kind of like, there is a nonlinear aspect to it, but at the end of the day, it's still, you will have to go to this point to continue on. You have various checkpoints, so you're always going to have to go through the courtyard to get to the gatehouse, the guardhouse. So it doesn't matter what order you get the um, emblems to open up the courtyard, you still have to go through there. Hmm. That's a good point. It's it's having these these places where it meets up, whereas like the minute to minute aspect of it is left more up to you. Like how you get to that point is still more in your hands but yeah there's in order to just like get through the narrative and get through the game there's always going to be a certain amount of uh, actions that you have to take in order to progress yeah you're always gonna have to find a key to get to an emblem to open up the next door mm-hmm. and all that so i mean like you're you still have to follow a somewhat linear path it just branches off not mm-hmm. in minor ways but in ways that can make it play through quite different. That's what I was, yeah, it's exactly what I was kind of yeah. getting at. It, what it reminds me... I mean, especially the original, though, because I, I actually felt like it had more uh, variety in the um, the choices that you can make, which were mostly in regards to your secondary uh, partner character. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but also kind of like um, depending on which character you had. So, I mean, like, if you play as Jill you're going to get access to different areas before Chris could. Yeah, that too. It it, do, it definitely changes things up. I guess the the thing that I was also getting at, you know, just uh, maybe not necessarily, because, yeah, clarify the point. It feels like in some sense, because I see what you're saying, like it's it's not necessarily nonlinear the way that like super very open-ended sandbox games are, you know, the way we define nonlinear. But it's sort of like we're given this list of objectives and the order in which we perform those objectives is 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 something that we can decide. And it's interesting playing the game, you know, especially because, you know, I've done elements of like either trying to speed run it because I'm trying to. And when I say speed run, I mean, in quotation marks, because I'm just trying to get the damn rocket launcher and the 
but then also like there's more leisurely pace or because there's certain cutscenes that you want to see. There's there's different pathings that allow you to encounter certain, you know, sequences or, you know, certain even adding like a challenge to yourself, like deciding, no, I'm going to get the I'm going to I'm not going to I'm going to play as Jill, but I'm going to wait till I get the broken shotgun. I'm not going to get it early. Yeah. Which I think it's really interesting with the way that a range mode and director's cut really, really remixes the item locations. Big yikes. Yeah, but when you're playing this, Jill, you're kind of thinking, like, you don't really need the shotgun for most of it when you grab the bazooka almost straight away. <laughs> True. I mean, I I guess because I've, I've thought of long game about, like, oh, God, I need to save that for the chimeras. I need to save that for the hunters in the underground. I need to save that for tyrants. So it's like my brain is like, no, I don't want to do, I don't want to just use that on zombies away with the shotgun. No. Um, but, 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 you're, but it's a good point, though. Yeah. That kind of reminds me as well. As much content as there is in the game, there was quite a few pieces cut out. Um, and going back to weapons, the Magnum was always going to be was originally going to be a slightly upgraded version of the handgun, hmm. so it wasn't like the one shot kill it would eventually become. You would actually have to get dumb dumb bullets to actually have a chance of killing a zombie or an enemy in one or two hits. Oh, yeah, I remember. I remember seeing the the item listing for the dum dum bullets back in the day. Like I think probably I think it was like on a website. I was like, oh look look at these like you know stuff that didn't make it into the main game. Yeah, but yeah. I think they eventually just decided you know you're adding a complication you don't really need. Just amp the power of the cold python. Yeah, and just make the ammo scarce. Mm-hmm. Which. Good God, do they ever. But they were apparently going to add that in the remake. Hmm. But again, decided, you know, you don't really need the dumb 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 Can't talk. You don't need the dumb dumb bullets. You can just have the Magnum. Yeah. Right. Although, I mean, I'll bring that up in the remake segment about finding the Magnum in that game. <laughs> <laughs> yeah no exactly now and it's it's also i feel like some of that is like a pacing thing because ammo types really feel like something you need to get within the first act of the game or you need to introduce because otherwise if you're because you know the magnum typically comes into the game around like the middle to late act two uh depending on which game in the series it is but it definitely happens you know pretty late or very early act three right or very early act three yeah exactly and it's like at that point, if you're adding an extra complication, you're just dragging that pacing out. But I mean, mind you, I've been playing Evil Within and that seems to be Mikami's thing. So that I guess that tracks. Dragging it out is dragging it out unnecessarily is Evil Within 1 in a nutshell. <laughs> but um, that's that's it. That's the game. All the co- content included. Uh, well, originally Resident Evil was going to be a far different game. It was going to be far more futuristic. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And the cast is going to be quite different. Yep. Everybody was going to be a cyborg. Um, Two other characters would have been the support characters for um, Chris and Jill. Including, I think... Let me just look at my note. Was one of them named Dewey? There would have been Dewey, but also a cybernetic character called Gelzer. Mm Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. The big big slab of meat. Yeah. Yeah. With the cyborg parts. Gelzer would have saved one of the characters if they'd got caught in the uh, sealant trap. Where you get, like, if you don't deactivate the trap, you get trapped in a room and the sealant's coming down. 
eventually when they decided that the game probably could do with being more contemporary, Gelzer eventually became Barry Burton. So he's he's not as massively as Gelzer was in the original art, but still takes on the big guy role. The other character would have been an African-American officer called Dewey, who would have been the comic relief character. He got cut very quickly because they kind of realized what he would have uh, impl- he would have uh, represented or possibly implicated. So, right. I think they were going to stylize him on uh, Eddie Murphy. I believe Eddie Murphy or Chris they, Rock. They mentioned that. Right. Mm-hmm. He looks more. He looks more Chris Rock. But you know, yeah, it's it's a. I'm kind of curious about that. It, it's interesting, actually. Um, Rick in Dino Crisis feels like an interesting like evolution of that character in some respects to me. Yeah, I was I was just thinking that they kind of ended up using some of the more uh, futuristic aspects for Dino Crisis. God. Yeah. Dino Crisis with cyborgs. Oh wait, nope. Sorry, never mind. That just gave me Dino Crisis three flashbacks. Nope. Abort. Abort. No. No. Bad Chris. Bad Chris. No. Bad. Well, I mean, there's still a chance that we could get Barry some cyborg parts in the future. I'd be down with that. Hey, Chris, Jill, Barry. look at these guns. <laughs> See, that's that's how he gets around being old. He just goes, "I don't, I don't need my Colt Python anymore. Oh, I have this," and it's like just like a rocket hand. Yeah, it's like the rocket hand version of the. Um, uh, I wanted to call it the Dragon Punch gauntlets, the ones from Resident Evil Seven, the one that uh, Joe Baker gets. Oh, oh yeah. I was also thinking of uh, Devil May Cry Five with uh, like Nero's arm oh yeah no that's that's another one yeah i just want to point out as well so the game is set in 1998 barry burton's 38 in that game yeah (laughs) same with wesker Mm -hmm. oh god but um Mm -hmm. yeah we're we're old now one character that was almost cut was uh rebecca and it seems, I didn't know that they'd almost cut her. Yeah, apparently Shinji Mikami was the only one of the crew who did not like Rebecca because he did not want a submissive character, a, a submissive female character. But the rest of the team actually fought to keep her in. And I don't think she's actually submissive. I think she's no. a teenage girl who's had a very shitty couple of days and has probably got like some frayed nerves at the moment. Yeah, and it's I, very, I, I think it's very it, understandable what she's going through. Yeah, and it, it kind of bugs me that like if he thought that about Rebecca, then m- maybe um, for Zero, y- you don't go the way that you did, which kind of minimized Rebecca's uh, contributions when like teaming up with Billy. Like mechanically, you almost never want to play as her because she takes so much extra damage than Billy does. And, oh, look, she can't move things because she's, you know, got small girly arms. Yeah. But she's good at, like, making making herbs because Billy, Billy is too, like, meathead to, to, like, shove two plants together. Billy make gun go bang bang, not make heels go heel heel. It's a baffling decision. <laughs> I imagine Billy just going, okay, I could do two things. I can shoot really good, and I can play a mean piano. That's all I got. That's it. That's, that's all I have. What do you got? And Rebecca's like, uh, chemicals? And apparently a parapacnial 
Right. Yes. Yeah, she ends up uh, carrying a lot of the stuff. Like, if that's how you felt about her, you had a very good opportunity to make her a little bit more active. And yeah, mechanically, you really didn't. And I mean, as a character, Rebecca is totally fine. She's the medic. She's not supposed to be going in guns blazing anyway. She's she's rear echelon. She stays behind. Mm-hmm. She shouldn't be in a combat situation to begin with. Yeah, like the the idea is she's not supposed to. She's supposed to heal the people in the fight that like are doing the fighting. I mean, if anything, you don't have somebody in a helicopter looking for murderers. Like, if you have somebody like Rebecca, you keep her back at base and bring her out if there is an incident. You don't stick her on a helicopter when you're looking for cannibalistic murderers. Well, I mean, stars doesn't make great decisions. They don't. No, I was gonna. I was gonna say like there, there's a baffling logic to the whole, you know, Bravo team, Alpha team, you know, the the whole lineup of you know the characters and their jobs and you know like everyone has the one thing they do. You know, there's a certain there's many things that's like okay, so it's not uniform training, no. you know, and it's the stars. I think were more like because at that time you did have this idea that policing should be more community based. So the stars, while technically an equivalent to, say, maybe SWAT, would also be uh, have a diverse skill set that they could do anything. Especially because I can see somewhere like the RPD having a large crime scene investigation unit. Mm, mm. It'd be more like a couple of officers have the training. Well, now you've got a couple of stars officers who are specialized in chemical analysis or medical training. Rebecca's a doctor. She can do an autopsy. (laughs) Yeah, I think they were kind of um, geared towards uh, anti-terrorism and that sort of thing as as a group. It's very consistent, which is a hallmark of Resident Evil. (laughs) (laughs) Definitely. I mean, I mean, the thing that the very like really interested me was that like the original setup was that Bravo team got in the helicopter and flew out to supposedly the hideout of the cannibal murderers and then disappeared. And ever since then, it's just uh, no, they went looking for them and then disappeared. Not the hideout. That's that uh, that house is not their hideout. Definitely not. Yeah, because you'd think like okay, well. You know, there's been a number of cannibalistic murders. We're going to send out half our team in a helicopter to take on the cannibals. The B-Squad. Why are you not sending the entire team and several dozen cops? Mm-hmm. And no, 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 no. The B-Squad. Right, B-Squad. They're fine. And then, you know, there's a whole thing of, like, the geography and, like, how do they find out that it's there? You know, yeah. It's, there's a lot of weird logic questions. Because, I mean, essentially, if they're raiding... You know, we went out to the hideout of the group and disappeared, you know, which is what the original game states. I mean, that's a raid situation, you know. Yeah. I mean, that's that is where you're as we're saying, like, yeah, like at least three or four more cop cars, plus the whole squad, plus a battle plan, you know, use, you know, I mean, Jill's supposed to is, is supposed to be uh, what is it? Delta Force is where she's supposed um, to. Yeah, she's ex Delta Force and she is a bomb disposal expert. Oh, At 23. Geez. At 23. 23. Oh but just, just to chime in expert. there as well, if you actually look at all the stars members, so you look at, say, Alpha Team, 
You've got Barry, who's a backup man, but also a weapons supervisor. You've got Joseph, who's an Omni-Man who can do anything. You've got Chris, who's the point man, who's straight ahead and the sharpshooter. You've got Jill, who's bringing up the rear. You've got Wesker as the team leader. That's the frontline team. Who do you have with Bravo team? The communications expert, the medic. Who else? The maintenance guy and part-time shooter and the chemist. I think my head just exploded. <laughs> they 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 did they front loaded all of their their best fighters onto Alpha team and then like all of their scientists on Bravo team and then decided let's send out Bravo team first so that they can science at the cannibal murderers. Maybe this was all part of Wesker's long game to get rid of all those darn nerds that were stinking up the joint. <sighs> I need combat data on the stars members versus my monsters. I think I'll send in Bravo team first because fuck those nerds. But, but sir, <laughs> would you actually rather get combat data from the people who actually served in the military? Later. Nerds first. But nerds they're going to get first. slaughtered. We're not going to get much information from them. I will get satisfaction. Complete global satisfaction. <laughs> Oh, I God. mean, oh, I mean, okay, okay. This is Resident Evil One, so to be fair, he doesn't have that voice yet. He just has his like regular like uh, kind of squeaky voice. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's like, bit. oh, oh, Chris, you're alive. Thank God, Chris. Chris, where are you, Chris? Wow, we missed you, Chris. Now to yeah. go evil. <laughs> yeah. And it's like, oh, oh, I'm sorry. I had to run away. I had my reasons. Perhaps you've met them. You know, the monsters. And it's like, thanks. Thanks, Wesker. Yeah. The voice, the voice acting in one is just all over the place. Yeah. And uh, according to some of the interviews I looked up, Kenny being one and some other uh, dev team, former dev team members, they've all kind of said, yeah, Mikami chose them all based on looks and th- none of the dev team was happy with the voice acting. Uh, reportedly, there was a Japanese language track also recorded that was really bad and was worse. And yeah, apparently uh, Mikami did not like the idea of an American game. Well, a game set in America and the entire cast speaking in Japanese. Right. Which, you know, and I totally I totally understand that. I get that. Yeah. But yeah. Um, I think it's it, what's amusing in two, two ways about this is that Mikami has since said, you know, I chose for looks and not acting ability. And he said pretty, it kind of is implied like within less than a year after the game was done, he realized, yeah, that was a bad idea. I'm not going to do that. Yeah, there's a lot of horror stories from when they were filming the live action for the live action introduction, and not the zombie kind of horror. There's a oh no, because apparently uh, there's a young woman, she's called Inza or something or Inez. Inez. Uh... Yeah, yeah, something like that. Yeah, I think it's Inez. Who, who plays Jill? And from what I understand, she was seventeen. And kind of far too young to be acting that kind of role. And, I mean, like, this is a young woman. She's in a foreign country doing a very difficult shoot. It was not easy for her. And I think it kind of showed afterwards. But uh, there's also another story about um, Charlie Kravlovsky, who played Chris in the live action. Mm -hmm. 
had to have his hair bleached that kind of matches Chris's uh, character art. They used straight up peroxide to do it. (laughs) And they turned his hair, which was actually nearly black, to nearly red. Wow. So it's kind of why it's shot in black and white. (laughs) Yeah. You also can tell when you watch the color version that the... um... Even though, I mean, the, the, the cinematographer did a pretty good job, but um, yeah, Wesker's hair is also... Um, he looks yeah. like Jelly Bravo. <laughs> he does. Oh, mama. He really does. He still does yeah. to this day. Yeah. He, forever Johnny Bravo. But um, another kind of thing just to spell is that the actress in Inez is not the Canadian or Irish actresses called Una Kavanagh. The Canadian Una Kavanagh was the actress who voiced Jill in the game. From what I understand, the Irish Una Kavanagh was actually still in school when Resident Evil was being made. Well, Um, today I learned. Yeah. Barry's voice actor, Barry Yurd, I'm not even going to pronounce his proper name. He's Barry Yurd now. Yeah. Was that as a Norwegian actor. While Chris's voice actor is Scott McCulloch. And I'm not sure what happened to him after Resident Evil. Oh, um, yeah. The voice actor for Chris, um, he, I believe, passed away in the year yeah. 2000. Um, I've, I'm looking at the IMDb page here because I've my understanding is that he's also the voice of Richter Belmont in the Symphony of the Night intro sequence. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think I remember hearing about that a while back. So he passed away about yeah about twenty years ago, but um, yeah, it was a car accident. Right, bummer. Oh man. Um, okay, he also now that I'm actually looking up uh, Scott McCulloch's credits. He is also um, he's <laughs> he's Paul Phoenix in the first two Tekken games. Oh. and and he's one of the uh, he plays a fleeing survivor in both House of the Dead one and two. Oh. Played House of the Dead too. Played a lot of it back in the day. Yeah, God, yeah, those were those are very good games. It's it's interesting that like the voice acting, which is you know like everybody laughs at it. It's it's hilarious. It still ends up really fitting in with that salute to old monster movie feeling that like they were going for. It just it kind of ends up being very appropriate. Yeah, it does. But I think as well, yeah. it, it's appropriate because they didn't have enough of a budget for the live action sequence. Oh, certainly. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's it has a budget. It has more budget than I expected. You know, like when I think of it today, I think it's the fact that there was so much tokusatsu TV shows at the, in the 90s, you know, because they still had to make the molds for those uh, dogs and they still have to have an explosives license to set off the charges and do the blanks and... You know, they still have to find a location. The lighting budget for night photography is still super expensive when you shoot on film. You know. Also, the uh, in the like uncut version, the the gore scenes for like the the victims that had been eaten. Oh, that's a yeah. yeah. It, it's 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 probably the best part for me. It's like it's mm-hmm. genuinely well done and looks good. Yeah, it's dis- it's disgusting and disturbing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's very but, um, it's very Fulci. As part of our research for this episode, uh, Chris found the uncut intro for the game and it's it's hilarious because there's actually one bit where the dogs are chasing 
the team. And obviously they've got like the heads of the dogs uh, made up as uh, puppets or something like that. So they're not using real dogs, obviously. But um, one of the dogs gets shot. And however they set up the charge, the ears pop off and the nose shoots out in split second. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And it's just so funny. Yep. It's just a case of, you know, you get what you get and you just hope it works. I mean, it's, it's, it just, it, I love how much it adds though to the original Resident Evil to see those effects. And I remember as a, you know, as a kid playing it for the first time, it just like, I, cause I already at that point, I loved monster movies and it just was like, it's like a movie. It was just it was so cool. And it felt so like, I don't know, just because it was a video game that I was playing, it felt so much more attainable. So like as a aspiring filmmaker at that time, it felt like, something so cool and just again as we're saying like it's it all it's like this is true love for the genre yeah yeah just it really felt like it worked for the tone that they were going for and i mean despite all of how entirely goofy that whole segment is and how goofy the voice acting is overall that's still the game out of the series that creeped me out the most like to this day yeah because it's a very visceral scene and it stays with you. I mean, I still remember the first time I saw that scene. Or even, like, when you load up the game and Chris is walking in the corridor. Mm-hmm. And he just he starts to scream and just zooms in on his eye as just there's a giant blood spurt. Mm-hmm. That stays with you. And no other Resident Evil has kind of captured that B-movie-esque horror. Um, actually, speaking yeah. of Chris, and this is going to be the last tr- piece of trivia I have. Um, he's actually modeled on Michael Bynes Hicks from Aliens. Is it is it Michael Bynes or is it Michael Bean? I've always known it as Michael Bean. No idea. I just go with I before E, so Bynes. Yeah, true. Good point. If I'm wrong, uh, Mr. Bynes or Bean, please don't come after me and kill me. I'm sorry, please. No. Oh, he's. I, as far as I know, he's a very sweet guy. I want to. I want to. Except after aliens. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, oh god, you can actually kind of see it though in Chris because his hair is very similar to Hicks's hair. Yeah. The fact that his team is decimated by a traitor who's actually got interests with an evil corporation. But also, what kind of really tips it over is the flamethrower is actually specifically designed on the flamethrower from Aliens. Ah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's always been... that's I've always loved... I remember noticing that and realizing, oh yeah, real flamethrowers don't look like the one in Aliens, but the one in Resident Evil does. Huh. I always love that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, when it, comes, when it comes to the firearms in the game, I've always enjoyed that there's that element that's clearly another movie reference thing is like the Berettas obviously from like, because they're cops, so it's Lethal Weapon or um, uh, Die Hard. Remington Shotgun, which is pretty common. Actually, the Remington 870 they use looks like it's definitely inspired by the one from um, Brain. Zombie, excuse me. Lucio Fulci Zombie. Because ah. that, uh, and, and that explodes heads. So that's another piece of uh connective tissue and then obviously the um the four barrel rocket launcher is is a uh, commando clearly so <laughs> it's a good thing it is a good thing yeah i mean i i think part of the thing that really made it scary over all of the other ones is 
there is a greater sense of loneliness because you're almost always completely on your own. Like, yeah, Jill might be able to meet up with Barry, but he keeps fucking off. And Rebecca says, I'll come with you. And then goes, yeah, I'll meet up with you later. Could you please clear the way first? <laughs> okay. I would prefer, yeah, I'd prefer if you went first. Okay, thank you. Great. So, like, there's this isolation, but combine that with the soundtrack and yeah. the, the sound effects, and you get this really, really unsettling feeling, even when there's nothing there. Mm. You always feel on the edge of your seat in that mansion and in every other section of the game. Definitely. You know, the other thing... The music's such a big part of it, like, so big. It is, Yeah. And actually, I keep I always keep forgetting who is the lead composer on this one, because I think it was two or three composers. So I'm going to look it up again. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, Masami Ueda, Makoto Tomozawa, and Akari Kaida. Man, wow. Three names that you see on a lot of Capcom games. Um, <laughs> yeah, they were the main folks that did the, did the, uh, the score for the first game. And there, we were talking about this on the Let's Play, that there's a certain discordancy that you get out of it that, you know, with the way, especially the way the strings and piano are very like synthetic feeling. And it yeah. sort of adds that strange, like it's familiar, but there's something kind of wrong. That's always what kind of gets to me really nicely. Yeah. I really love that about it. And I mean, and combine that with like, say uh, that hallway, uh, the, the green hallway, like after the, the dog hallway, the same mm. one that has like the, uh, bathroom and like the shotgun room mm -hmm. off of it later on in the game that was probably like one of the scariest places for me because you had the creepy music but then you heard click 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 screech yeah and, mm. and and there's a fucking hunter and you're dead yeah i mean like the hunters really when they get introduced, they ramp up whatever terror you're feeling because up until that point, you face enough zombies that you know you have so much distance you can use. You can, um, mm. you know, a way you can kind of like deal with them. The hunters mm. completely throw that out the window. They do. They just, they wreck everything and they are just, the screech is just completely horrible and they've never quite gotten that same tone for them since then. Yeah, the screech there's a theory in biology that there's a certain frequency that when a human hears it, it actually triggers one of our most primal instincts that's fear and that when we hear this frequency we kind of seize up in terror mm -hmm. and you really see this, well, you really hear this, I should say, when a tiger roars because there's that, it has that right frequency that when you hear it, you freeze up and that's what the hunters are doing. It's tapping into that kind of, oh shit, there is something coming after me. I've always found it yeah. interesting with monster sound effects, you know, to, the, to this note, you know, because like this comparison, right? It feels like monster sound effects in general have gotten less distinctive, more homogenous. 
And it, I'm not sure entirely if it's because people just keep seeking eternally the sound that is more natural, more clean. Because you know, I know, I know, yeah, you know, I work with sound guys on film stuff, and it's like it's oh, it's a good clean sound, and a clean recording is cool. But there's sort of an artistry I find to doing good monster sounds. Like we see this with like kaiju movies. Like mm-hmm. I love Pacific Rim, but like none of the monster sounds in that movie are distinctive. You know, I can't tell Knifehead and Otachi apart at all, and. The um, the thing with the hunters is like the hunters in some of the newer games do sound very good. I do like the hunters in the remake, for instance. They it's not as terrifying oh, yeah. a sound, but it's a cool sound. But like remake, when, remake three came the closest to making the hunters like they were in one. Agreed, absolutely agreed. And it makes I mean it makes sense that the two appearances of the hunters that use the old sound effects. I think that's both Survivor and in uh, Resident Evil 3. It, it's like, those are definitely more effective. That's a really strong sound effect that created that effect is what you're saying, Paul, about, you know, because I love that concept. I've heard that same thing. It's like, uh, there's a certain frequency, a certain rumbles that like shake us, you know? And I'm just kind of, you know, just like I'm intrigued by that. Like, you know, it's, it's I'm thinking out loud more than anything of like, gosh, I wonder how much of that was a technical limitation, how much of that was just the design. Because I know in the 90s, you know, distinctive creature sound effects, you know, happened a lot in monster movies in Japan, you know. So it's just, I don't know, something Well, a lot of the time, like, whenever you had, like, a monster or something screaming or roaring or making any sort of noise, it's a real animal noise being mixed or slowed or sped up. So it's more of a case of, People have heard these animals being used so many times. Like, you've heard the tiger's roar. You've heard, like, a wolf howl. You've heard lions. or You've heard roars. You've heard barks. You've heard screeches. And nothing is original anymore. Nothing is kind of like... Nothing sounds new. Hmm. But you're also getting technology now where you don't need to sample an elephant and a lion and mix them to make a T-Rex. You've got a a synthesizer now for that. You Mm. know, also, the the original Tyrant really didn't have an actual, like, vocalization monster sound. He has, like, a couple of growls, but he doesn't have, like, a roar the way that, like, uh, Nemesis does. Yeah, or even um, uh, Mr. X at the very end Mm. of the B scenario kind of does. Well, you know, Tyrant's a strong silent type. <laughs> yeah. Nobody nobody really knows what what is going on in his head. Uh, but I, I do also wanted to add that um, Chimeras are like the MVP for me because like they're one of my favorite monsters in the entire series. And I'm kind of sad that we really never got to see them again. But I'm also yeah. kind of glad we never got to see them again. Yeah, I mean, there's that too. Like they're they're completely horrifying and, and like very creepy. Like they, the hunters gave me a much more visceral, visceral reaction because they killed me. But like the... The chimeras like stick with me as like a lingering like Ugh, these yeah. guys are so creepy. I'm kind of glad we never got a more up to date remake because <laughs> I can imagine you'd get a full face on view of a chimera, and that's something I don't want to see. I actually feel got sick it. whenever I see like mm. a close up of a fly's head. I just feel like I have to throw up. Oh no! Oh, sorry to hear that, dude. Because. Wow. 
I'm going to, because believe me, if there's a petition that says, bring the chimeras back for Resident Evil 8 or 9, and it's like, I'm going to fucking sign it twice. Um, <laughs> but, um, nope. I mean, I'm glad they weren't overused, but I, I would love right. to see them again in, like, some capacity. But imagine if, um, when you fought the tyrant and you're trying to get out of the lab, and the chimeras had gotten out of the power section. Oh God! Oh man. oh man! I'm just thinking of the few times you have to fight the dogs and Mister X at the same time in Resident Evil Survivor, and nope, 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 nope. Oh. Actually, that with the chimeras in the power section, and then RE3 remakes. I was I was going to mention Devos. that. Yep. Yeah, in their own power section, it's it is it's a very similar kind of callback. I I mean I don't think it was entirely intentional, but I think it's probably the heat. It's neat. <laughs> I just think it's. I just think it's neat. You just think it's neat. Just hold up the potato. Just, yeah. Chimera's Chimera and their uh, brain damage was causing. Was just like, why do we always hang out in the power section? And the head just like holds up a map. I just think it's neat. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. Oh, I mean, I, I also for like the original. I I do genuinely enjoy how much of it is revealed to you throughout the game by finding the notes. Yes. The notes really kind of help ratchet up the terror because yeah. another thing that got cut was that you would actually find messages written in blood all over the mansion. Mm-hmm. Wow. And you can actually see this nowadays on the emulator if you actually change the color palette because what they ended up doing with the letters, the messages was just they just changed the red or the brown, to the matching color. But if you change the color on the emulator, you Hmm. should see the original messages. And my understanding, some people have theorized, at least, or speculated, I've seen, um, some of those messages are George Trevor messages, right? Well, his whole um, subplot did get cut out of the original. Yeah. And then put back in for the remake. Plus, like, when did George Trevor die in the 60s? Uh, yeah, like 1967 or 8, I believe. So I'd kind of say, right. like, 30 years later, they're not going to leave the blood messages on the wall. If <laughs> so, yeah, it, as, I, as I mentioned, it's yeah. yeah, it's speculation. I'd say it'd be more like, they're killing us, they're killing us, or essentially yeah. just versions of itchy tasty. Yeah. Ah, zombies. <laughs> there are zombies here? <laughs> Forget it. The blood messages, I could see just being like, He's gone crazy. They're killing us. We've doomed ourselves. Stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's it's wild to think about that because the um, there's two things about that. You know, the files existed in some respects in um, in Sweet Home and was obviously a staple of uh, other point and click adventure games as well as especially like the stuff like. Um, the Laura Bow games and some of the Sierra stuff and some of the, the LucasArts stuff. Alone in the Dark obviously had some elements of like reading files for plot detail and things like that. But um, thinking about the blood on the walls with messages, man, that's like so many years before it became common to do environmental storytelling, you know, before the idea was popularized. Right. Yeah. I mean, that thing was all over the original Bioshock. Yep. Which, uh, Bioshock came out around the same year as Portal, right? Because Portal was where, like, people really took notice of it. Uh, it was 2007, I believe. Yeah, kind of a check. Uh, yeah, they came out the same year. Interesting coincidence. 
weird. Well, I think um, you also had Valve tell, uh, doing environmental storytelling with uh, Left 4 Dead. Yeah, there was a bunch of that in Left 4 Dead. Yeah, because basically what happened was the environmental storytelling kind of sort of begins, people say, in Half-Life 2 in 2004. Um, but um, yeah, Portal and Bioshock and then, yeah, Left 4 Dead, which was about a year later, like those really like pushed, like, you know, here we're actually telling you like real character stories, which bringing back to Resident Evil, um, I love that you sort of gain this connection to that place and that location through this, these journals and letters that you read and you learn yeah. about these characters. And like, I feel sorry for Martin. Yeah, then it turns into Hotel California. <laughs> You've checked in. You're never checking out of that place. Yeah, it's it's really uh, it's nice how they they give like some little bits of humanity to like certain scientist characters that you never really actually get to meet. They're just they're just these notes. But like also, there's there's tip offs about Wesker not being who he says he is, and you could. You could pick up on that if you read the notes and you were like really paying attention, but otherwise, you it would just hit you at the end. Yeah, it's presented in such a way that unless you're actually reading between the lines, you can easily miss it. Yeah, it's they they actually took the the early references to Wesker out in the remake, and that kind of bummed me out. I wish it was still in there. I mean. One thing I'm always going to miss if they ever decide to actually do another remake is um, you're never going to get that sense of oh crap when you power up that projector and you see Wesker in umbrella uniform. Simply because you're probably never going to see a projector in the game again. (laughs) It's just, it's uh, Wesker has become so ubiquitous with the series that seeing him again and even in like a remake aspect is just not going to have the same impact that it did originally although i mean part of me kind of wishes that they would do it again just just get a chance to have an actual canon scenario which we still do not have and we never will yeah probably because um if you play as Chris, you never actually find out what happened to Barry. Yeah, it's just like, I don't know, he's possibly still out there. And then if you play as Jill, it's like, well, Rebecca, who? Yeah, so I, I just kind of imagine, though, because most people think of uh, Chris's scenario being the canon one. I just like to imagine mm-hmm. Barry's in some clear in the Arclay Mountains. There's a pile of the Cerberus corpses. <laughs> And he's just making like little pinecone versions of the star scenes. It's like, you would never leave me behind, pinecone Brad. <laughs> he's just, he's got his own team now, and they're all just pinecones. I mean, like, Umbrella Chronicles kind of does that, where it's like, you you have Chris and Jill together, and they find Rebecca, but where's Barry? Uh. Nobody cares about Barry. And I'm like, well, we all care about We him. all love, yeah, love every, Barry. everybody loves Barry. Barry's like the team dad. Yeah. Yeah, yeah totally. He, 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 he totally is. He is, is. He's the totally the team dad. Yeah. And he gets divorced with the team mom, Westbrook. <laughs> <laughs> I was so happy when he came back for Revelations too. Oh, dude. 
I was yeah. so I was so happy he re- rescued Jill in the canon for Resident Evil Three. Yeah. Yes, yes, yeah. I'm I'm kind of sad that we never got that option in the remake of Three. I, I would have loved to have had Barry. I mean, I this might okay for some. This might be considered blasphemous, but you know, it was a case of it seems it was very much a budget situation with Three, the Three remake. Mm. Mm. I would trade Dario for Barry in a heartbeat. Well, yeah, because Dario didn't really even get his the impact of him being in there. Exactly, you don't even go back to see him get eaten. Yeah, like that. That's my point. It's like if you it, it, Dario as a character only really has importance if you actually go back to the warehouse later and then see him dead. Otherwise, you could have actually just killed him off there, and then you could have just had his body in the container, the door open. His throat torn out or something. Mm-hmm. I don't I like guess that. I... Oh, that just made me. I'm sorry. That just made me have this awesome thought that just I, we haven't seen in a while in a Resident Evil game is because often it's like they oh they eat the body and they munch on stuff and whatnot. One of my favorite parts of the original game is the fact that it isn't just the first zombie isn't just eating Kenneth. It is torn his head off. And is eating it. Yeah, clean. Which like, means yeah, yeah. clean off. It's, clean off. He he's he's not coming off. He's not coming back. And I'm just like had this thought of like you have the headless corpse of Dario, and the thing is eating, munching his head. You know, they wouldn't get away with that. No, I. Hmm. It depends on how much they show. I'm not. I mean, I guess what I mean is I'm not asking for the guy who gets his throat run, torn out in Day of the Dead with the guy. You actually hear his, his vocal cords tear, you know. Yeah, um, but I think uh, like Resident Evil could kind of get away with that before 2000. After that, it's had to tone down the gore somewhat. I and think I mean, you like, and I, I, don't know. I, you and I are playing. Feels like are playing very different no, no, games. No, 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 no. Let, let me just continue. Yes, you see the deputy getting his throat torn out. But that's in a very dark room in a very dark environment. Dario essentially has a spotlight thrown on him by the helicopter. Mm. And actually having his head torn off. You could have the headless body. You could even have the zombie turned around and you could kind of imply the head's being eaten on. But actually seeing the zombie chewing on the head i don't think you get away with that now hmm. at the very least it I would think, have an issue with censorship in japan because that's that's yeah. been one of their main problems because I, I know i think they would possibly get away with it but only that scene because it's kind of like how um elliot edward getting ripped in half in remake two that's like their big gore shot that is that is where they got it, and that would have been like their only place for it, and then yeah. the rest of the game would have been toned down. Hmm. And I mean, like Resident Evil Three is a game that does not have a lot of gore in there. It doesn't have the blood that Resident Evil Two had. Yeah, the the physics detail and things like that. Yeah, just because they were pushing that engine so freaking far. I mean, even the uh, yeah. Anyway, sorry, we're we're getting off track though. Yeah, so we're probably gonna be wrapping this up now. I think. Yeah, I think I think we've done a a pretty deep dive into the original Resident Evil and talked about a lot of the stuff and the development and stuff we like about it. And then next time we can uh, shift focus to uh, the remake and uh, 
I think getting to um, some of the more of the meat of like the the content of the game itself, because I, I feel that a lot of that talk benefits from the talking about the differences between the two. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think we will be kind of going into a deep dive about the characters. Yeah. Yeah, we will talk a lot more about them. Yeah. And just kind of like, like Vanessa said, we'll be talking about the differences between the original game and the remake. Yeah, there's some very distinct differences that, that change the feeling of everything. and Crimson Heads. Yeah, there's that. We'll talk about Crimson Heads next time. <laughs> And also a little bit more on my feelings on like uh, the uh, spacing out of the monsters and uh, like the big uh, boss monsters and how each area is punctuated by fighting one big animal monster, except for Tyrant at the end. But I mean, he's man. Animals, man. Still counts. Man, the most evil animal of all. I mean, whenever the tyrant busts out of the, the test tube, it is, it is really, turns out it was man. Actually, it, one last note, like, it always got me because I, I played Jill most often for the original uh, Resident Evil. And a lot of times in the original, they had that option where, like, in one of the endings, he just, he just fucks off. Wesker fucks off. Oh, for God's sake. <laughs> and then you find him in like the power room without his like he's been like pulled apart by chimeras and that's actually couldn't have happened to a nicer guy yeah and that actually is uh the uh scene that ends up getting adapted in the uh the book so we're gonna have to order the actually... books again aren't we <laughs> oh god no I, I still have mine i actually brought them with me when i moved so <sighs> i'm set okay so chris um I vote we nominate Vanessa to read all the books so we don't have to. <laughs> <laughs> I've got plenty of experience with the books. I, I feel, and the thing is, I feel bad. Like, I've, because I have now, since those books, when I read those as a teenager, I have read far worse. Oh, um, yeah. I've, I've, uh, way, way worse. Dies the Fire deserves to die in a fire, for example. But uh, yeah, it's, I don't know, at some point, you know, it's I like, would... I, I need to, it's like, I feel like I want to give it another try, but do I need to give it another try? I don't know. I, I would take those books any day of the week over Ready Player One. Yeah, well, I listened to a zombie audiobook and, oh, uh, that's 13 hours of my life. I'm not getting back. Oh, dude. My sympathies. It's one, yeah, it's one of those stories where, you have all these characters, they make it through alive until the last two chapters when everyone bar three minor characters die. Mm. <sighs> Bummer. Lame. So, uh, I, think, uh, I think that's kind of it now from us, so... Yeah. <laughs> that that's going to be our part one then right the one thing i was going to just mention i guess they'll end end on a joke and so we're not you know bemoaning i'm sure people might be disagreeing with our yeah, opinions but but I, I mentioned this i mentioned this i mentioned this off mic is uh is the moment when wesker shows chris the tyrant and is like this is the ultimate <laughs> life form tyrant and chris starts laughing and it's like chris stop it and I just had this idea that that is the Chris Brofield moment of dunking nerd Wesker's books. Yeah. Well, you know, he, he's got a point because if you look at Tyrant, 
If it's supposed to be the ultimate life form, it can't spread on its genes. It doesn't have any nads. Its heart is on the outside and presents a massive fucking target. Its face probably doesn't even work properly. It's got one giant claw and nature hates symmetry. Your ultimate life form is a fucking joke. <laughs> tyrant. Excellent, excellent. Tyrant. Yes. Excellent he's note a, to go down. It. Also, it doesn't have an ass. <laughs> tyrant. He's a fucking joke. There you go, guys. That's that. That's the quote of the episode. That's quote. Of, <laughs> there we go. Oh, so uh, I have been Paul, aka Castle Rook. I have been Chris, aka Jabberwocky, nineteen eighty six slash Chris Jabberwock. And I've been Vanessa, aka Vanessa Sketch. You can follow the podcast on Twitter at the a Statement Pod. That's a statement with an E. Or if you got any questions, comments, or anything that you'd like us to cover in a future episode, feel free to drop us a line there or email us at spencerestatement at gmail.com. And uh, you can follow all of us on Twitter at our respective handles. All and those links will be in the description. Yep. And we will catch you all much sooner next time for the remake portion of this two-parter. So everyone stay safe out there, and we will see you all soon. Bye, everybody. And don't itch your tasty. <laughs>